If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 487. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. Give me that email address when you get there. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Don't forget you can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Also clicking on that support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You get a book plate there, get my autograph on one of my books. And I've got, of course, a new book out, The Jeffersonian Tradition, along with Southern Scribblings. It came out last year. A lot of great stuff, plus many other books. So you can support the show that way. You can also go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Wizzleberry Classroom, another great educational website where I teach with Tom and a whole lot of other great instructors. And, of course, you can always share the podcast around on social media, rate it where you get your podcast, let people know you're listening to it. If you go to anchor.fm and you find the podcast there, you can become a supporting listener. You can donate that way as well. Lots of great ways to support the show, and send me those requests. In fact, this week I'm going to have a listener-generated episode. It was a good suggestion, so I'm going to cover it, and I think it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. And so setting up this week, what I want to do this week is talk about history. It's something I do all the time, but talk about it in a way to try to get you to understand where we are in America in 2021 and the war on history and how history has become such a weapon. The point of history used to be to understand. Now, we know that the Romans, of course, uh, thought Libby, for example, thought that we could take examples from history. History is the best medicine for a sick mind, as he once said, for in history you can find all the different things to emulate or reject. And that's true, certainly. I mean, we look at history and we try to figure out, okay, well, these people were great or these people did great things or these people are are not so great or whatever the case may be. Or what's more important is to understand the complexity of people and that they, some, everyone does great things and bad things. Things we don't really appreciate today and things that we like today. But as a collective in American history, we have certain times in American history that we have, we've developed at least because of the historical profession, good guys and bad guys. And is that fair and accurate? And what does that do for modern America? The Thursday episode is going to be a lot of fun because I think that you're going to be surprised about something. But We've developed good guys and bad guys, and we've got the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence coming up in just a few years. In fact, five years. We're already starting to prepare for it. So that's going to be a big event. Just a few years ago, we had the 150th anniversary of the War for Southern Independence, or the Civil War, or the War Between the States, whatever you want to call it. I think the War for Southern Independence is the best description of the event just like the American War for Independence is the best description of the event for 1776 to 1783, or 1775 to 1783, excuse me. 
I think that's the best description because what we're looking at in both instances was a war for independence. You had a people seeking their independence from another government. In the case of 1775 to 1783, the people that we like won, right? I mean, it's us, the, the United States, the American states won. They secured their independence from Great Britain. In 1861 to 1865, unless you're in the South, or even if you're in the South, some people don't think this way, but the South lost. And for some, that was a devastating defeat. For others, it was a validation of the righteousness of America, the Lincolnian nationalist myth, the, uh, the uh, righteous cause myth, right? I mean, this is what it was for them. But what we're getting at here in both of those instances, and we've seen it, and of course I've talked about it uh, with the debate I've had with Michael Anton, and of course that carries forward into the war. What we're seeing is the uh, creation of good guys and bad guys in American history. And in both circum circumstances, the bad guys happen to be the South. And why are they bad? Well, because they don't have the same view on society in terms of race and labor as modern Americans. And that's all we say about them, right? If they have these, uh, these views which are not allowed today or not acceptable today or not uh, feasible today, whatever phrase you want to use and how you think about these things, well, then they have to be the bad guys. Everything else they did then is forfeit and wrong. And, of course, they're also traitors. We know that Washington was a traitor, though, to the, to the oath that he took to the British. I mean, so we, we admire certain traitors, but not other traitors, if we want to just look at it that way. But certainly we have this uh, love-hate relationship now that's been developed because of the historical profession with our past in America. Now, one thing Trump was able to do in 2016 is capitalize on a latent love of America. Right? I mean, Make America Great Again was based on a type of patriotism, not nationalism. I think people were confusing the two. It was based on a patriotism, just the love of America and what America was. It was a Jeffersonian phrase in many ways, not a Hamiltonian, not a nationalist phrase. And I think that's what everyone missed about that particular phrase. But it was more in line with a patriotic phrase than a nationalistic phrase. Now, Trump, of course, called himself a nationalist. And a lot of people, well, this is nationalism. we got to focus on this nationalism. This is what it is. But in reality, what Trump was actually capturing was a Jeffersonian understanding of America. And we'll talk about that when we get to Thursday. But before we do that, I want to go back to 1958. And I want to talk about the lead-up to the centennial celebration of the War for Southern Independence and what this meant. And I want to focus on an article that was published in Modern Age in 1958 by Lewis Rubin Jr. Now, Lewis Rubin Jr. was a leftist, but he was a Southerner, and he loved the South. And he actually wrote the introduction to the most popular version of 1930's I'll Take My Stand. He certainly he was a literary figure. Um, he certainly loved the idea of the Southern tradition. He was born and reared in it, so this was something that was in his blood. And he loved his people. He certainly didn't care for some elements of their political, uh, political state. He didn't, he didn't like some of the things that Southerners did and did not do. 
but he certainly loved the South. And I think that's an interesting part of Louis Rubin's character. I mean, this is this is something that was important for him. But he wrote an essay in Modern Age in 1958 about the centennial, the coming of the centennial. It was three years away, two to three years away when he wrote this. And he talked about how commercial it was going to be. You see, Rubin was against commercialism. And he said, all these, we're going to have Oldsmobile have these kind of cars. We're going to have all this commercial and touristy stuff going on. All these things are going to happen. And it's going to miss the point about the real importance of the war. What was it? What was the real importance of the war? Not hoop skirts and gray, men in gray and blue and celebrations of reconciliation and celebrations of the war and Johnny Reb and, and uh, Billy Yank and all that stuff. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't toys and commercialization and fireworks and, and uh, celebrations. None of that mattered. Now, when you look back at that in 1958 and you think about what happened just a few years ago when we had the 150th anniversary, it paled in comparison. I mean, and he mentions in 1958 that everyone's going to love the South. They're going to go and they're going to want, you know, Robert E. Lee this and Stonewall Jackson that. And it's all going to be about these great Southern heroes. And we're going to also talk about Northern heroes. But everyone's want, going to want to focus on the South because the South was romantic. That wasn't the case in 2011 or 2012 or 2013. You go back and look at the celebration there. It's all about how bad the South was a reevaluation of race in America, uh, the, the elevation of the righteous cause myth to some uh, level that had never been seen before. The South was simply wrong and traitors and everything else. I mean, this is what came out of it. And of course, right now, we're still in essentially the 150th anniversary of Reconstruction because that began in 2016, and we've now we're in 2021. So we'd be in 1871, 150 years. And nobody's really talking about that. Reuben does. Reuben talks about it in his piece. And so I want to get into this. We're gonna, I'm not going to focus on the first part. I want to get to the last part of the piece. Because he says a lot of interesting things. He says, all this or comparable goings on, he's talking about all the pageantry and fanfare, will take place for four years and more. Indeed, it has already begun. Nor for that matter it is, is it particularly undesirable. Almost anything that helps to interest the American citizen in his country's history and tradition is probably a good thing. Notice he mentions its history and tradition. Tradition is a good thing. Yet in the shuffle, amid the television, the pageantry, and the dancing, there is a genuine danger that the real meanings of the Civil War may become lost. A centennial observance that deals exclusively with the surface manifestations and the immediately obvious phenomena to the neglect of serious contemplation of the causes and bloody lessons of what Avery Craven has, tempt, has termed the fearful cost which the nation paid to get itself into the modern world will be both a tremendous waste of effort and an expense, an expense and a pathetically lost opportunity. So he's saying, look, in 1958, we have to understand what this war was. Now imagine if you said that in 2010 or 2011, that would have a whole different meaning. Because in 50 years, everything changed. Everything changed. What changed was the way that the historical profession had, been, had, had beaten a different idea of the war into the heads of Americans across the time frame. And of course, by 1971, 1981, we had seen a total transformation of the American polity 
of American society. And so Americans were looking at things differently anyways. 1958 to, say, 2008, which within 50 years, was completely different. He says, For the war which split America across the center for 50 years, which plunged one section into a nightmarish state of poverty and peonage from which it is only now extricating itself, and which in the other touched off sinister forces of exploitation and greed, which had most faithful meaning for American democracy, is nothing to be dismissed with some colorful noise-making and tourist activity. The Civil War meant something, and I, and I like this because he's going to get into it, what he thinks it meant. Its lessons are many, its, its, its lessons are many of them still valid. It can teach us things which Americans need to know and realize a hundred years later. If, for one thing, a study of the events that brought about the secession of the southern states and the firing on Fort Sumter has any meaning at all, if the investigations of scholars such as Craven, Randall, Nichols, Nevins, Milton, Carpenter, Rhodes, Channing, and others share any common conclusion, it is that Americans should be continually on guard against extremists and extremism. So what Rubin is saying here, which is interesting, look, the war taught us that we need to avoid the extremes on both sides. The extremes on the left and the extremes on the right. This was said in 1958. Now think about what's happened, what we're looking at now in 2021. And the polarization of the American polity. I mean, this is happening right before our eyes. Now, uh, you could say that it's being caused because one side is reacting to the other. I mean, that's true. But Rubin is saying we need to be careful of this extremism. At every juncture in the events leading up to the bombardment of Fort Sumter, the student of American history is confronted with ample evidence that the war between the states should never have happened. It would never have happened had Americans kept cool and steered clear of slogans and cheap hysteria. Anyone who examines the writings of most Americans in these several decades before the war will realize how little anyone wanted a civil war. Now, this is true. If you look at 1788, for example, and you look at the Virginia Ratifying Convention and Edmund Randolph, Edmund Randolph's, almost every one of his speeches in that convention was made to avoid disunion and to prevent a war. Because that's what he saw happening in 1788, should the states not join the Constitution, in the Union of the Constitution. He thought that it would certainly be war. So the threat of disunion was one of the things that he thought was most important for supporting the Constitution. He didn't like it, but he thought union was better than war. Now, you could look back at 1860 and 61. I mean, you could actually argue. I mean, Southerners did argue. Is this the, should we actually secede at this point? Is this something we should do? You can still have that question. Was secession the right move in 1860 and 1861? At all. And then, of course, you can look at it. Was Lincoln's move the correct move, legally, morally, constitutionally, whatever, to launch an invasion of the Southern states? Because the initial... Thrust of the war was about saving the Union. So, was that the right move? So then Rubin says, the cause of the Civil War was ignorance. It was ignorance that led people north and south be cajoled and manipulated by various rabble-rousers and fanatics. Had the people of the north and the south listened to their true leaders, those whom they later and instinctively chose to lead them when the real peril came, 
the Civil War would never have taken place. The phenomenon most striking to me about the coming of the war is that those who were most prominent and successful as leaders once the war broke out were, for the most part, people who did not remotely want the war to happen. Those who agitated most vociferously for abolition and secession, with few exceptions, played minor roles after the fighting began. It was the hot-headed slavocrat Robert Bromwell Rhett who came to symbolize the Southern cause, but the reluctant secessionist Robert E. Lee, whose lofty character embodied the fighting will of the South. And it was not Wendell Phillips, the zealot, or Charles Sumner, that subjective idealist and poser who exemplified the North's resolve to save the Union, but that essentially disenthralled and profound man Abraham Lincoln, believer in calmness and conciliation. Now, I can disagree with Reuben on some of the ways he characterizes some of these people, but certainly, he. I mean, look, Lincoln was always portrayed as a moderate not someone who was a rabid abolitionist like Phillips or Sumner. I could I could make a case that Seward was even more of a moderate than Abraham Lincoln, though. And in fact, there is one theory that if Seward had been elected and not Lincoln, we wouldn't have had a war. Because Seward wouldn't have done it. Lincoln would. When the crisis came, it was to the Lincolns and Lees that Americans turned for guidance. Yet it was not their counsel, but that of the of clever hotheads like Rhett, Yancey, Phillips, Garrison, Pryor, and Greeley that Southerners and Northerners most, Northerners most accepted in the 1850s. To the fire-eaters, to the fanatics, Americans owed in the twisted perspectives that made secession and invasion seem necessary. As with such successive war, as with each successive war, successive war excuse me, each new crisis in American history, the Civil War teaches one lesson most of all. It is this, beware of ardent tongues and one-track minds. Do not listen to men who shout. If, in the years ahead, Americans might be helped to learn this lesson by contemplating the causes and consequences of the Civil War, then all the money invested in celebrating its centennial will be well spent. What seems so obvious about the Civil War's advent from the South's point of view is that the Southern statesmen and people were badly outgeneraled and outthought on the hustings. The Norse editors and political figures skillfully backed the South into a corner. They forced the South to fight it out on the issue of slavery when slavery was but a symbol of the real issues. And he gets into that. So if you go back, there was reading a little a piece in Debose Review from 1860, and he the, the point of the piece, and I, I might write something about this, but why did why does the North hate the South so much? And essentially he says the exact same thing. This is 1860. He's saying, look, slavery is just a surface issue. They hate us to their core, which is why they bring up this issue. They're jealous of us, all these other... They're jealous of us, they hate us, and so they use slavery to get at us, when that's really not the issue. There are so many other things here. And that's essentially what Reuben is saying here. Slavery was just a surface. It wasn't the real issue. It was a surface issue. The pathetic spectacle of the South's best statesmen and pamphleteers laboring vainly to defend the innate wisdom and justice of human slavery... Instead of alerting the farmers and townsfolk of the North and West to the cold, calculating economic noose that was being shaped for them, is sad to contemplate. This, this is why, after the war is over, and what Reuben's getting at here, is you, you, why you had the populist revolt. Western farmers, now the populist revolt came out of the South first, but Western farmers, Midwestern farmers, Western farmers, realized that they had cut a bad deal in 1861. That in reality, what they had done by defeating the South was defeating themselves because they were an agricultural people, they were a mechanical people, 
and New England cared nothing for them. The banks in New York cared nothing for them. And in a way, what Rubin is doing here, and I'm going to talk about this throughout this week, there's a theme to this. What he's pointing out is that this Jeffersonian vision of America was under assault by New England almost the entire time under charlatans, hucksters, as he calls them, faux causes, righteous myths. This is what it was all about. The real people of America have been duped and bulldozed by people with a good tongue to not realize that what's really at stake here are their communities, their livelihoods. And there's a common cause, North and South and West, for this. And to be able to capture that, and I think this is what Trump sort of did in 2016, he captured that that spirit, that Jeffersonian spirit, make America, it's a patriotic spirit, not a national spirit, a patriotic spirit, make America great again. It's a great phrase, and of course, Pat Cadell, who's a Southerner, had a lot to do with that. And of course, Pat Cadell died. The South is always behind this, and this is something, again, this is, this is why they hate the South. He says, Ralph Korngold, in his eulogistic biography, Thad Stevens, a being darkly wise and rudely great, vividly described a day in 1837 when Stevens, champion of mercantile interests that he was, faced a losing political battle in Pennsylvania. This is one thing that people don't realize about Thad Stevens. Thad Stevens is always interested in Thad Stevens. Thad Stevens is always interested in his bottom line, and that was why he was so interested in the war. He made tremendous amounts of money on iron contracts during the war. Now, Richard Kreitner, who wrote a book on secession, loves Thad Stevens. And I point this out, and he says, gosh, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of trying to slap me down. And he said something to the effect that, you know, call in the army, uh, call in the police for, not, no, call in the police for saying that a guy uh, wants to protect his economic interests. Well, he did. It was the millions of men who fought for the blue and subjugated the South. That's exactly what happened. Then one day, he was visited, visited by an agent of the American Anti-Slavery Society. He faced a losing political battle in Pennsylvania. So he's visited by an agent from the Anti-Slavery Society who pointed out to him that potentially the potentiality of the slavery issue as a means of recouping his political fortunes. Stephen rose to the bait with alacrity, as did many other protectionist politicians in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. Such men knew very well that they were doing when they raised, what, what they were doing when they raised a slavery issue. But instead of sticking to the underlying issues of the North-South Schism, the South willingly permitted the issue to be shifted to that of slavery versus freedom. Instead of pausing long enough to think things out, otherwise sensible Southerners permitted the hotheads and extremists to talk them into making a defense of their particular institution just at the point where it was most weak, its moral justification. Thoughtful Southerners knew better, but they let themselves be persuaded by the Rets and Yanceys that slavery was not merely justified because it existed and could not well be eradicated overnight, but that it was a positive good and should not only be preserved, but extended and enhanced. The result was indeed an irrepressible conflict and one that the South was fated to lose. So if the South had just stuck to the real issues and said, look, we're not going to talk about this. And this is something today, right? What's happening in America? We have real issues in America, real issues of real economic issues. We've got we're spending so much money that there are some real economic issues that are going to be major problems. We've got issues of a too powerful central government. We've got issues out there across the board that are not the culture war. 
But what have Americans risen to? The culture war again. We've come right to the point that Americans were in 1860 and allowed ourselves to be part of this culture war. Now, this is not to say that this isn't a real issue, that Americans aren't interested in the culture war and that there are some fundamental problems with this. But when you look at the actual numbers of people that are instigating this culture war, they're, they're insignificant when you talk about some of the groups, some of the minority groups that are really pushing the issue. Of course, they've got the media and the political class in their back pocket, so it makes it bigger than it is. And you, it, you would think that this is everywhere, but most Americans realize it's not everywhere. But when you start forcing it in the schools and everything else, that's when you start getting an issue. However, what about this massive amount of money that Americans owe? And you go back and you look at the 1780s, it's, like, it's a refreshing thing. They're talking about debt and finances. And they're talking about power of government and what's good and what's bad in that. I mean, these are pure issues back in the 1780s. The real issues of America. And yet, just like in the 1860s, just like in the 1960s, which we'll get into, as these became a distraction for what was really happening. doesn't mean it's not real and it's not important, but they become distractions. Another and related lesson implicit in the Civil War, and one equally pertinent, is this one. Men began fighting in 1861 with no real notion of what was involved in their actions. Attempts to understand and analyze what was going on were pitifully inadequate. In each of our wars, this seems to be true, and particularly so in this one. Northerners, Northerners march into battle singing the Union forever, and his truth is marching on, yet somehow in the five years from 1860 to 1865, the party of Abraham Lincoln and Free Soil was transformed into the party of the robber barons, the credit mobilier, and the Haymarket riots. As Kenneth Stamp has written, Yankees went to war animated by the highest ideals of the 19th century middle class, but what the Yankees achieved for their generation at least was a triumph not of middle class ideas, but of middle class vices. The most striking products of their crusade were the shoddy aristocracy of the North and the ragged children of the South. Among the masses of Americans, there were no victors, only vanquished. So Stamp is a, look, Kenneth Stamp is one of the most ardent leftists to write on the war. In fact, he hated Crandall, uh, Avery Craven, I'm sorry, Randall Crandall, Avery Craven and Randall. He hated these people. He called them, you know, they were just the worst of the worst. But Reuben is pointing out here that what, what do we get out of this war? The robber barons, the credit mobilier, the haymarket riots. We got corruption. Now, I would disagree they went off fighting for these high moral values because we know that James McPherson and others has pointed out they weren't fighting for that. Many men were fighting simply just for a paycheck. As the William Marvel book, Lincoln's Mercenaries, points out. But regardless, this is a, an important point to make. It is hardly likely that the forces of uh, forces the Republican Party of 1868 and 1872 re represented were not present there in the caucuses of 1860. Yet of the Jacksonian Democrats of the Midwestern states who bolted from the Democratic Party to vote for Lincoln, how many had any knowledge or awareness of this? So he's, he's pointing out, I mean, these, these northern, these Jeffersonians, they weren't Jacksonians, they were Jeffersonians. You see, what he's getting at here is there was a Jeffersonian coalition that needed to be there, that was dissolved because of fanaticism that needs to be back together again. And this is what 
Trump capitalized on. It's what I'm going to talk about at the end of the week and, and, uh, on Thursday. I'm going to talk about how that was part of it, too, and how this is always there. This Jeffersonian vision of America is always there. What was broken in 1860 was that alliance. And that was the real tragedy of it all. Conversely, the Southerners from all over the South locked into the Confederate armies to defend Southern soil from invasion, to stand up for Southern rights. Yet when the guns opened on Fort Sumter, not one inch of Southern territory was threatened with attack. Not a single call for volunteers had been issued by the Federal Department, and the Southern and Northern Democratic strength in Congress would have been quite enough to ensure against tariff prohibitions and other potential grievances. This is true. This has been pointed out. If the South had just stayed in the Union, they could have defeated everything in Lincoln's agenda. Everything. Because they had allies in Northern Democrats, and they could have done it. It's been pointed out. It's true. The Civil War is or should be a constant reminder to Americans of the perils of the short view. To free 3,500,000 slaves, some 568,000 soldiers were killed. Could not the emancipation of the slaves have been accomplished slowly and patiently another way? Well, absolutely. Of course it could have. Lincoln actually pointed out it could have been done differently. Right? So, I mean, of course it could have been done differently. But, I mean, this, these, are, these are forbidden things to ask now. When Trump simply stands up and says, hey, Robert Lee was a great general. Oh, my God, you can't say that. If you say now, well, could slavery have been ended gradually, peacefully, just as it had in the North? Could we have done this in the South? Well, of course it could have been done. Now, Southerners were digging in their heels. It might have had a little more of a fight. A lot more of a fight, in fact. But certainly it could have been done. Similarly, to assert one's inalienable right to settle slaves in Western territories manifestly unsuited to their use economically, and to demonstrate one's unwillingness to tolerate a sectional president, the South sacrificed 260,000 of its finest young men. What theoretical right was worth that kind of bloodshed? What kind of pride could justify the ensuing 40 years of Southern history? He asked a very good question of the South. They lost 260,000 men. Did they have to? The, some of the best men in Southern society were lost in this war. Did they, have to, did they have to do that? Could something have been done differently? Yet when these seemingly obvious truths were pointed out, few listened. In the recently published Civil War diary, uh, Brockenburn, the diary of Kate Stone, there is this para, uh, parathetic entry for May 27, 1861. We had a warm discussion after tea, Mr. Newton contending that the states had no right to secede immediately on Lincoln's election and that they should have remained quiet for four years and seen what would be the policy of the government. We all bitterly oppose this view of the subject. Why in four years we should have no rights worth fighting for? He thinks that if all the states had been patient, there would have been no war for years and that it would have been better to submit to Lincoln's rule no matter how unjust than to have provoked a war. But oh no, we cannot see it that way. We should make a stand for our rights, and a nation fighting for its own homes and liberty cannot be overwhelmed. Our cause is just and must prevail. This is a general sentiment of the South. So Reuben continues, During the four years following that entry, the South found out something that the rest of the country has never yet found out, that merely because a cause is just, it need not necessarily prevail. American optimism, to the contrary, a nation fighting for its own homes and liberty can be overwhelmed true. And this is something Southerners pointed out they'd lost. This is something Sam Irvin used to say a lot. Well, I mean, defeat can shake the glory out. He used to quote a poem by a man named Markham. Defeat can shake the glory out. Southerners are the only people that knew what it was to lose. And look, 
Northerners rub their noses in it still, even though the South wins in so many other things, but because the war was lost and because Northerners don't realize what they're actually saying in that, particularly leftist Northerners who complain about some of these things, that the war actually has led to some of the stuff they hate, they really don't know what they're talking about because it all comes down to social issues, to the culture war. In reality, the culture war is bigger than just uh, the modern wrangling over race and gender and things like that. The Civil War has a great deal to teach Americans about our future. The South, in particular, could teach Americans elsewhere that right does not necessarily make might, that it be that it is possible for a nation and a people to believe firmly in the right as they are given to see it, to fight long and desperately and bravely for the right, and even so, to lose utterly. Almost alone of the people of America, Southerners learned that it was possible to lose, that success is not the inevitable birthright of Americans. The gospel of progress and success, we are the greatest nation that ever was, was for many years inapplicable to millions of Americans. History had taught them otherwise. Reuben's right about this, right? I mean, this is something that's purely correct. The South was defeated, and it was shown it was defeated over and over and over again. They weren't part of this truth is marching on, triumphant America that Americans seemed to think was the American story. Southerners almost alone of Americans knew that history could happen. They had found out that now was not forever, and the rise and decline of peoples and nations not something abstract. Right? Southerners are sounding the alarm over and over again about the doom that's being foisted on America because they know that everything doesn't always have to be good. They've seen it. As early as 1862, when Southern fortunes were still bright, a young Virginian artillery officer sensed this. John Hampton Chamberlain, writing to his sister while serving in the Army of Northern Virginia, had this to say. He sensed that there, it was going to change, that whereby we will learn how to read history while we make it for ourselves. They're going to be part of that process. The Turk is coming for them. It's going to sweep them aside. In four years of war and 35 more of poverty and humiliation, the southern states learned how to read history. So far, the rest of the United States has never had to learn that lesson. Success and progress have been all that most of the United States has known. And nowadays, the South, too, is forgetting that history once happened. 97 years is a long time to remember something, and the factories and motels do seem to be faring so well. It's a great warning. 1958, a great warning for what this could be. The centennial of the Civil War is coming. It will be a grand event. The pageantry, the glamour, and glitter, and easily dramatic, we can expect all of these. But it seems to me that Americans who are interested in the meaning of our country's history have a greater responsibility than that. They must see that the observance of the Civil War's 100th anniversary is made to mean something. The opportunity must, be not, the opportunity must not be allowed to slip by, abandoned to the tourist business. In concrete ways, the meaning of this great anniversary must be put forward, along with the parades and the souvenir stalls. Americans must be told of the true significance of the occasion. They must be made to see that the blood along Cemetery Ridge was not synthetic, that these were men essentially like themselves who were fighting and dying a hundred years ago. The coming centennial of the Civil War presents an unparalleled opportunity to use the American past in order to teach American lessons that will stand them in good steed for their future. 
for Southerners in particular to give to Americans of today and to themselves as well, the wisdom of their section's beautiful and bitter history will be a worthy and generous gift. One thing I think he said there, that the blood at that was not synthetic. It was real blood, and Southerners were real people who really suffered. Because what we're seeing now, these aren't, these aren't real people anymore. They're just abstractions. Southerners are abstract. They're an abstraction. They're a traitor. They're bad people. They're an abstraction. They're devils. They're vampires. Abraham Lincoln, vampire slayer. These people are just awful. They're monsters. They're not real people, just like, just like any other Americans. They're not even American anymore. They're something else. In 50 years, we went from this to now Southerners really aren't even Americans. Southerners of the 1860s, they aren't even Americans. They're not really Americans. They're un-American. What does that mean? Rubin was pointing out the real problem here is, is that. I mean, Southerners needed to put forward their best foot and say that Southern culture and Southern tradition is something worth hanging on to. The Jeffersonian vision of America. And that's what he's talking about. That's the thing he wanted people to get out of it. Was something worth knowing about and emulating. And of course, we just don't do it anymore. All right. We're going to talk more about history as we move through the week, but this was such a good piece, I wanted to get into it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.